And if I am made for God and my heart is restless until it rests in God, if I have a capacity for God and I choose to put myself in that place, then I will forever be restless. Hello and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. I am Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined by no one. That's right. Dave is in Nashville right now, taking his bride to get a uh, doctor's uh, consultation, visit, examination, update, all that stuff that she needs in order to stay healthy and progressing towards wholeness. Always keep her in your prayers. Her name is Amber. Pray, pray, pray for her. Um, good news on that front. See, uh, cancer seems to be, uh, shrinking as far as we know. That's why today's visit is such an important thing. Now, uh, I talked to Dave last night we were going through a handful of different stuff. And he said to me that he wanted me to do a individual show today. And then I was going to call him later on when he gets back to the hotel at night and he's taking all of his podcast equipment with him so that we're going to record a show for next week together. But right now, uh, he asked if I would continue the theme that we began last week. We had talked about understanding the nature of sin as it relates to discipleship. And if you didn't listen to last week's episode, it is incredible, especially all the parts that I talked. What? No, but Dave wanted to talk about this. He, he was really passionate about this understanding of sin and discipleship. Just because you are a disciple does not mean you're perfect. Now, we all know that on some sort of intellectual abstract level, but often many of us forget this fact on an emotional or more visceral level. We forget this whenever we sin. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you are caught up in especially repeated grave sin, and Dave used the example of a men's group that he works with of pretty hardcore pornography addicts that has manifested in what many people would call just horrific examples of sin, um, you know, and and I'm sure your mind could could think of you know things that people get arrested doing all this different stuff. Um, and I work with men in the prison who are guilty of. Uh, sometimes very heinous things. And he said, and I thought this was so important. He said, you know, sometimes I find that these men can actually have, even though they're struggling with horrific levels of sin, like scandalous sin, that they can actually be some of the best disciples of Jesus. It's not because they don't have sin that they're some of the best disciples. It's that they constantly run after his mercy. Now, we unpack that in a lot of different ways, but what I want to do is I want to continue the theme of sin and understanding it in its relation to our ability to proclaim the gospel and to disciple others. Now, here's a note that one of our readers sent in. He said, it's not really us who teaches. It's not really us who disciples, and it kind of bothers me when you guys say that. Okay, fair enough. It is always the work of the Holy Spirit. But as uh, St. Augustine is one to say, right, God created us without us, but he does not will to save us without us. And so we belong through our yes and cooperation with grace. We belong truly, truly as co-workers with the Holy Spirit. That's a great dignity of Christian work. So when the Holy Spirit is the only one who can convict people of sin and disciple people, but also by our words and speech, 
we help disciple people. So it's not, it's all the Holy Spirit and it's not me. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. So this podcast is all about making disciples. That said, uh, when many people are wrestling with sin, we need as evangelists to understand what sin is and what sin is not. Oftentimes I find people in the grip of paralyzing, almost complete despair over their sin, right? Um, I have worked with people who, let me, let me put it this way. They commit the same sin so many times and they don't know, they feel disingenuous when they go to confession because they feel like it's just a rehearsal. It's just a thing. And we kind of mentioned that last time, but they can't find a way out. In fact, I had one man who was, who actually was one of my early uh, trainers in evangelization taught me the ins and outs of evangelizing people with boldness, especially strangers. He was an awesome guy, but he was lost in sin in certain areas of his life. And one day in this like really brutal and super honest, um, conversation I had with him, he said, you know, I hate this sin so much that sometimes I wish I could go to confession and then walk out the door of the church and get hit by a car and die. Knowing that it wasn't my fault that I died, so I'm not committing suicide or anything, but at the same time that I would never be caught up in that sin again. Now, this man was, by definition, lost in despair. His soul was worn down by the power of sin in his life to the point where he was despairing over his ability to change. And this is something that I think sometimes we lose sight of. We treat sins in a very enlightenment sort of way. What do I mean by enlightenment sort of way? Well, leading up to the enlightenment and ever since the enlightenment, we tend to view things that are immoral or wrong or bad or evil or a sin in the Christian church, you know, or, you know, immoral or just bad in in kind of secular terms. We tend to treat it as an isolated individual thing when we speak morally. When we speak psychologically, we tend to talk about, you know, habits and inclinations and all things like that. But when we speak morally, we tend to view a sin uh, like as an isolated act, not connected to someone's life and attitudes and desires and thoughts and repeated actions, but just that individual thing. And in fact, we've been training people to go to confession this way for about four or five centuries. Like in the Catholic Church, this notion in, in moral theology is called casuistry. You take it on a case-by-case basis and you analyze it from that perspective. But the problem is once you actually understand the nature of of human sin, you realize that every sin is a spider web. Every sin is not just a thread in the web, but is itself a spider web connecting itself to all other different sins, all manner of different sins. And we touched on it a little bit in the last episode, but there was a paragraph in the Catechism of the Catholic Church that I've been reading uh, lately. And in preparation for this uh, show, I brought it up and paragraph 1865 um, the, the article is sin in, in part three, which is all morality, but this particular, um, thing is called the proliferation of sin. And in 1865, it says sin creates a proclivity to sin. Sin creates a proclivity to sin. It engenders vice by repetition of the same acts. This results in perverse inclinations, which cloud conscience and corrupt the concrete judgment of good and evil. Thus, sin tends to reproduce itself and reinforce itself, but it cannot destroy the moral sense at its root. 
This is huge for us to understand the spider web like nature of sin. Sin creates a proclivity to sin. So that's why we said in the last show, and this is so important to understand and get ingrained in our hearts as both evangelists and disciple makers, as well as individuals who are disciples, is that every uh, every venial sin, especially those that I intentionally commit, every venial sin, while not contrary to the love of God, and while not destroying the life of charity in my own heart, every venial sin is linked to an even greater sin. Right, And it paves the way for mortal sin. And mortal sin is the loss of salvation. Just say that in your head. One of the things I think we do in the Catholic Church is because we're just used to this casuist understanding, that's not how you pronounce the word, uh, understanding of how we view sin. So we keep thinking, okay, well, is that a mortal sin? Is that a venial sin? I'm evaluating this individual isolated act. I'm thinking about, does it break a commandment? Yes, it does. How, you know, what is my, um, what is, what is the uh, mortal sin, right? Uh, is it full knowledge and complete consent? And is it grave matter? And yes, it is. Okay, I go to confession and I'm free of mortal sin. But we lose sight when we have that that kind of lawyer-esque mentality. We lose sight of the radical damnation of mortal sin. We tend to isolate it, put it in a category, and then that's it. But we have to remember, mortal sin is damnation. Mortal sin says, I don't need the love of God in my life. Sin creates a proclivity to sin. And one of the ways that it does that is it clouds your conscience. It clouds your conscience, and as the catechism says, it corrupts the concrete judgment of good and evil. What the heck does that mean? It clouds your conscience. It confuses you and the voice of God echoing within your soul. It confuses you as to the nature of evil and what it actually does to us and the nature of good and what that does for us. And so what we end up doing is we justify the mortal sins that happen in our lives. I mean, think about it. When you commit a, a mortal sin and you go to confession for it, we tend, now some of us are, are, are deeply repentant, and even if it's habitual or not habitual, it's a, it was a one-off thing, whatever it might be, many of us have a, a, a profound interior sorrow with a desire to never commit it. But there are times, especially people caught up in habitual mortal sin, that we just t can tend to go cold, right? He, okay, same old, same old. Okay, this is mortal sin. All right, I need to go to confess it. Okay, that's what, you know, I did have full knowledge and sufficient consent or whatever we say, complete consent. Um, but the idea is my conscience is being clouded and uh, my, my judgment of good and evil is being corrupted because I make sin banal. I make it commonplace. I make it, it's, it's like the furniture in my life. Okay, so I put it in this category and I go confess it. What we have to realize is that mortal sin damns us to hell for all eternity. What is hell? Hell is the absence of God. And if I am made for God and my heart is restless until it rests in God, if I have a capacity for God and I choose to put myself in that place, then I will forever be restless, right? The flames of hell are perfectly analogous to intrinsic and eternal or immortal frustration, right? We will be frustrated because we will never attain the final end. It is pure frustration. And so when we look at sin with this isolating lawyer-like judgment of we're just like, yeah, I guess that's a mortal sin. What we end up doing is we cheapen the power of the salvation that Christ died and rose to give us. Sin creates a proclivity to sin. 
right? What does sin do? It reproduces itself and it reinforces itself. So when we start to talk about sin in this very, very, very real way, what we need to understand is we are confronting both in ourselves and those that we are evangelizing. We are confronting the self-chosen undoing of our own lives, right? C.S. Lewis has these wonderful books called the the Space Trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, um, Perry Landra. What is the last one called? That Hideous Strength. And at, uh, the book called Perry Landra, he's on Venus, and Venus is going through its Genesis chapter two and three moment. And the creatures, instead of descending from monkeys, descended from mermaids. And it's all fascinating science fiction fantasy story. I love it. But um, this demonic man who is fully possessed by Satan and is the one who tempts. Um, he, I think his name is Weston, I think, maybe. Yeah, I think it's Weston. He, uh, the, the Dr. Ransom, who's the hero of the character. Yes, Ransom. What a great name. Uh, Dr. Ransom is fighting this guy. And at one point, he describes him as the unman. Right. He's not just a, he's not a zombie. Right. Even though his personality is so suppressed and the demonic has taken over, he's not a zombie. But there's something about his life that is being undone. And this is the true tragedy of sin. It's not just an offense against reason, truth and right conscience. It's not just a proud self-exaltation, as the catechism says. It's not just a violation of God's commandment. It is an undoing of all of those things. It is an undoing of the possibility of being rational and a truth seeker and having a right conscience. It is the undoing of our ability to exalt Jesus Christ, to be obedient to God. And it puts in the place of God myself, but myself at my worst, right? That's what sin does. I was reading um, the Jewish Encyclopedia written in 1906, as I'm sure all of you do all the time. And in the Jewish Encyclopedia, they said, why, why are the commandments given? Or it was something along those lines. And they essentially said, the commandments and sin and righteousness of humanity doesn't affect God in the sense that the more good deeds we do, the more powerful God becomes and the more evil deeds we do, the more, uh, or the less powerful God becomes. No, he says it is for us. It is for us. Like to forbid these things that are forbidden us is the very, it's like the greatest act of revelation that God can do and the tender, most caring for his children, because the nature that we have sin wounds that very nature. It undoes us by our own free choice. That's why the first definition of sin is not, it's against God. It's, it's an offense against reason, truth, and right conscience. Like think about that. It offends my very nature to commit an act of sin. And then when you realize that sin desires to reproduce itself, this is the point where that lawyer-like casuistry type thinking really wounds the Christian in pursuing holiness. Because what it does is it isolates that individual sin and it breaks it apart from the web of sin. It breaks it apart from my the, the story of my life. It breaks it apart from my struggles and desires. It breaks it apart from and separates it from the wounds that I have, my upbringing, my baggage, all of that stuff. And it prevents true and authentic self-examination. So when we start to think about sin in a bigger way, in a larger way, we begin to see it's not just that I violated this or that commandment. As St. Francis of Sales says, when you find yourself engaged in habitual sin, ask yourself, what is the attitude underneath that sin? That takes true examination of conscience. What is underneath that that is constantly causing me to turn towards this? And the amazing thing is what's underneath it is often itself not a violation of the Ten Commandments. 
right? It's not like I lie to my mother and father. Therefore, the only thing that's underneath it is breaking the, the fourth commandment of not honoring your father and mother. That's a part of it. But then we might look at our hearts and say, well, I am lying constantly to my father and mother because deep down in my heart, I am scared of them not loving me or, or whatever it could be. Or I, I have a fear of abandonment. Or there, This is the realm, right, of where we get down to almost the unconscious forces in our life. And I talked about this last time that when we have Christ and we really believe in the cross, that enables us to confront the dark, down, deep sins that dwell in the basement of our lives, that dwell in the basement of our hearts. And this is the whole importance of self-knowledge. Why do I commit this sin all the time? Think about that. Why do I commit this sin all the time? That flies in the face of that lawyer-like thinking, of that analysis and separation and isolation of this individual sin in and of itself. It begins to look at why do... Why have I constantly, when thrown in this situation, turned to this sin? So, for instance, I was talking with um, a guy the other day, and he says, why is it, why is it every time X happens, I turn to pornography, right? Why is it every single time this happens? And that involves deep introspection. And the beautiful thing is when you take these deeper inclinations, when you take them to the confessional and you confess like, okay, yes, I looked at pornography and sexual fantasies or whatever it might be, and you confess this, and then you confess the underlying attitude, right? You begin to gain not just clarity, but grace. You get the grace of the sacrament that Christ died and rose to give you to combat not just the sin, which we can see as the fruit that dangles from the tree, but you can go and attack the trunk and the root. Why do I turn this way? I turn this way over and over again because of X, Y, or Z. And then we end up addressing the fear. Why am I afraid of my parents despising me or being embarrassed in front of my coworkers or this, that. And then we end up, right? We, we're down in the basement, right? We're with the snakes and the serpents down in the basement and we're confronting them, right? And we're scared to confront them because they might bite us. They might harm us. They might actually kill us, right? And the reality is they have already killed us so many times in the past. But the difference is when we go down into that basement, when we go down into the cellar where all the snakes dwell in darkness and commit so many uh, horrible things in our life, it manifests in so much ugliness. What happens is this time we carry the cross with us down in that basement. And what we end up doing is we find underneath those snakes, like why is it that they proliferate in this darkness? And then we can attack it, not with our own strength, but with the grace of Jesus Christ. We can attack it with the man that from the very beginning, his whole life was about saving people from their sins. The very name Jesus, Yeshua, means Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. So we can go we go down into that basement where all the snakes are, and we got the cross. We have the cross and we have the resurrection. We have this understanding that I can go down into the depths, not because I am strong, but because he already went down into the depths for me. He is already down there in the basement with me. He already went first. And he knows the name of all those snakes, right? He can call them out and he has destroyed their power. So now I can walk down there. I go down into the depths because he descended unto the dead. Because he descended into the hell of man's no to God, I can walk down into the basement of my own life and confront the darkness that's down there. 
And once I'm down there, here's the difference. I have confidence that eventually, maybe not right now, maybe not this month or this year, but I have confidence, not in myself, but in what Christ can accomplish, that every one of those snakes can be beheaded, right? Every one of those snakes. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. You will bite his heel, but he will crush your head. Now think about the power of Christ down there. Because when he descends into the hell of your miserable life, when he descends into the very gravity of your mortal sins and your venial sins, what does he do? Does he reject you? No, he kills the thing that drives you, right? Going back to that Jewish encyclopedia thing, that destroys you, that drives you away, that casts you out, that drives you east of Eden, right? That pulls you out of the presence of God, that ruins you, that that leads to your restlessness. Jesus willfully chooses, Jesus willfully chooses to descend. He deemed not equality with God as something to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being found in human appearance, right? What did Christ do? I love the catechism. It says the gospel, the gospel is the revelation in Jesus Christ of God's mercy to sinners. So he descends into the darkness. He goes down into the basement of your and my life, the very place that we don't want anyone else to see, right? All of our offenses against God's law, against reason, truth, and right conscience, all of our diametric opposition, I love that catechism, diametrically opposed to the obedience of Jesus, all of that, all of our opposition, all of our rebellion, all of our willful desire to be disinherited, all of our prodigal son, younger brother attitudes that we take to the father, the perfect son descends into that. And we don't have to hide. We don't have to hide anymore like we do on Facebook, like we do on Twitter. We don't have to hide anymore like we do on Instagram. We don't have to hide. He already knows, and he's already down there waiting for you to walk down those steps into the basement, into the darkness, where you can hear the voice of serpents calling out for your death. And yet, right, I think of the words um, that Christ uttered, this illness will not end in death. So Jesus goes down into the basement of our hearts, but here's where the hope comes in. We know that he rose from the dead. We know that death holds no claim against him thus forth. And you and I are in Christ. So this means that we can go down into the basement. We can go down into the darkest parts of our heart and not lose hope. Not like my friend who despaired of ever being healed. He spent 30 years indulging himself in sin and sin proliferates and sin reproduces sin. He spent 30 years of his life diving into this and then thought, well, now that I know the truth about these things, right? Now that I know the law of God, I should be free. But he had trained his will to choose unfreedom. He had trained his brain and his muscle memory to choose unfreedom. He had taught himself that every time stress goes up, I chase and escape with this particular sin over and over and over again. And he thought that magically, just because I know now it's wrong, that this would all go away. No, Christ is in this for the long haul. But the promise is resurrection. The promise is resurrection. So if I can go down to the basement because I know I'm going to come back up, 
I know at one point in time, I will ascend those stairs. I know that by the power and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, who went before me as the leader and perfecter of faith, as the pioneer of my faith, as the one who uh, created the past through the mountains and the valley of the shadow of death, I have every confidence in God because his perfect obedience led him not just to the cross, but to the empty tomb. And that basement will be empty of all those serpents and all those snakes and all those little lies I've told myself and all those fears, right? And all those vices that I've clung to that have become a part of my identity. What I end up doing is I get a new identity when I go down there. And it's not the one that the serpents hiss at me, right? It's not the names that they give me. The true identity that I have is I am now in him. I am now in him. I am in Christ. So Christ is giving you, right? Think about this. Christ is giving you his identity. So circling back, right? Circling back. If we say that we don't have sin, we are a liar and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, right? Think about that. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John uh, 8 and 9. Think about that. Embrace this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You and I, brothers and sisters, are in a war, right? We're in a war, but part of this war that is so sneaky and underhanded is because some of it, right, we don't even realize that the enemy got behind our lines by our genes, right? Like our, our genetic predispositions towards a lack of patience or towards strong drink or whatever. We also are battling the fact that maybe the way we were raised, right? The vindictiveness of my father's anger, right? The pettiness of my mother's guilt trips, whatever it might be that we have baggage from how we were raised, the brokenness of their marriage schools me in my inability, right? To say yes to God. And then through my repeated actions, through the culture that I'm saturated, it's not just the flesh, it's also the world, the sources of temptation, right? Sex sells. You can't turn on the television without being inundated, right? With hyper-sexualized imagery meant to be super palpable so that you and I will, will just drink it down and it becomes a part of us. And all of this stuff, right? This is a battle that you and I cannot hope to win. And half the times we don't even know there's a war going on. But the gospel is the revelation in Jesus Christ of God's mercy to sinners. So what happens? That Jesus Christ looks upon us caught up in the lies of the flesh, right? The distortions of the flesh, right? The lies of the world and the temptations of the devil. And Christ reveals his absolute merciful love for us. I love this phrase of the catechism. But to do its work, grace must uncover sin so as to convert our hearts and bestow on us righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Think about that. Think about that. Grace must uncover sin. Sin always wants to be covered. It always wants to hide in the basement. It always wants to stay down there so that you and I don't understand the nature of our enemy. The more you say, this is why like every other episode, people say this all the time, like every other episode, Part of our five practical takeaways is always something that involves uh, an examination of conscience, right? Because the more we have self-knowledge, not self-obsession, right? Not some sort of disordered version of self-knowledge where we're obsessed with all this stuff. 
but honest self knowledge, right? St. Paul says to look at ourselves with sober judgment and not to be puffed up with pride, thinking we are something when we are nothing. And so the idea is when I have this understanding, why do I do this sin? This, this individual isolated act is actually tied to a whole web. It's tied to a story, a narrative of your life. It's tied to an identity that you bought into some point along the way. And Christ doesn't just want to get you to stop sinning. He wants to go to the root of the sin and bring healing so that the fruit that comes from the tree that is your life, I'm really pushing this analogy, the fruit that comes from the tree that is your life is righteousness to eternal life through him, right? That's the goal. And so when we downplay the nature of sin, when we only look at sin as an individual isolated act, this one offense against reason and that's it, we're already losing the battle. So I want you to listen to this message from Ascension Press. Email us at EKS, EKSB at ascensionpress.com if you have any questions, especially if you know you want to kind of go through this whole, we're going to do multiple episodes on the gravity and nature and stuff like that of sin and helping people out of sin. But when we come back, when we come back from this break, we are going to dive into specific ways that we can address sin and uncover it with the grace of Christ. All right. Hi, I'm Sonia Corbett, the Bible study evangelista and a Baptist turned Catholic. As a Baptist, I thought that Catholic beliefs were invented, that they came out of nowhere and had no connection whatsoever to the Bible. I also happened to believe that the Old Testament was about rules, rituals, and sacrifices that the New Testament gave us permission to ignore for a personal relationship with Jesus. It's a long story, but as God began connecting the Old and New Testaments for me, I was stunned by the beautiful consistency of God in the Catholic Church. I can't tell you how exciting it was when God opened my eyes to the incredible ways the Old Testament foreshadows God's plan for the New Testament and for His Catholic Church. In my book, Fulfilled, Uncovering the Biblical Roots of Catholicism, I explain these amazing connections and I share how those connections helped change my life. If you read this book, I promise that you will come away with tools to help you share your Catholic faith easily, answer questions about how your Catholic faith fits with what's in the Bible, and most importantly, grow deeper in your relationship with Christ. If you're interested in learning more or ordering a copy of Fulfilled, Uncovering the Biblical Roots of Catholicism, you can do so at ascensionpress.com or on Amazon. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back, and now it's time to dive into the five practical takeaways. Number one, understand where temptation is coming from, the world, the flesh, and the devil. What do I mean by that? When you recognize the types and sources of temptation, you can gain self-knowledge. You're at that beginning stage of gaining self-knowledge in this area, and it'll help you to reject or avoid those things that trigger you into sin, right? You need to know thyself in these areas. Number two, fight temptations with the appropriate tools, Sometimes you might need a psychologist and not a priest for certain sins, temptations, habits, fears, you know, whatever it might be, anxieties, all these things. Let's use the tools Christ has given us, right? If you're OCD and you just keep attributing, you know, fixating on a certain sin to the devil, the devil might use your OCD to tempt you to sin, but confronting it with the tools of a psychologist will actually bring you real freedom. If you are sick, 
go to a doctor. Okay. So fight temptations with the appropriate tools. Number three, distinguish temptations between the willful and the unwillful. This will bring a lot of peace to a troubled conscience. Some people see sin where there is no sin. They look at temptation and they see sin. And sometimes those temptations are unwillful. I didn't mean to get caught up in this temptation. For instance, I'll say you're walking down the street. Me and my wife went to New York City for a for a fancy uh, vacation, just the two of us. Walking down the street, advertisements, you know, plastered on the sides of buildings can be super suggestive, right? And that can get caught in your head. You can think of that woman, you know, scantily clad on a Victoria's Secret poster or whatever, and it can get stuck in your head and linger there. Now, that's that's one thing where an image that you didn't want gets stuck in your head. That's unwillful. I didn't want this. It's another thing for me to purposely choose to walk down that street so that I can see that advertisement and linger over the advertisement, not having this temptation hang out in my brain, but uh, having my body and my eyeballs linger over that thing. So there is a difference between willful and unwillful temptation. Willful is walking straight into venial, if not mortal sin. Unwillful, so many people have so much self-hatred because of unwillful thoughts and temptations, right? There's a line in cognitive therapy. These are my thoughts, but these thoughts are not me. Okay, you take ownership. They're my thoughts, but they're not me. Understand that. Number four. Learn from others' example. Listen, the saints have been where you are and won. That's why we have patron saints over specific things. They've been there. Learn from their example. Also, go to people in your parish family. My parish is filled with amazing people. Go and let them bear witness to their own struggles and triumphs and failures, right? Ask questions, be honest, and seek out mentorship in these areas. Learn from other examples. And finally, number five, the book of Genesis, God gives uh, one commandment, but two tasks to Adam. One commandment, don't eat the fruit of the knowledge of tree of good and evil, blah, blah, blah. But the <laughs> two tasks are to till the garden and to keep it. To till the garden and to keep it. To work for growth and good, till the garden of your soul, and keep the garden and to guard against the destroyer, right? To till means to work for the good, right? So do those things. Don't just obsess over your sin and trying to get out of your sin. We talked about last week, how one person, you know, struggled for pornography for years. And then I said, uh, man, once I get over this, like, uh, what would I go to confession for? Right. It's because it blinds us, right? Sin blinds us. So till the garden of our soul, develop good habits of prayer life, develop good confessional life, develop good sacramental life, develop good liturgical life, taking the prayers of my personal life from the liturgy so I can draw strength from it, right? Steep yourself in scripture. Do the Letzio Continua or Letzio Divina. Immerse yourself in the life and words and deeds of Jesus, right? Like these things are incredible. That's tilling the garden of your soul, but also guard it. Realize that you need to be on the defense for your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour, right? There is an enemy and he's trying to devour your soul, but we can guard against it. So that's my five practical takeaways is mostly just understanding things about your own self and your own life. Uh, thank you so much for listening here to Every Knee Shall Bow. Again, Dave will be back next week, and we will continue this conversation on sin. No one wants to have this conversation, but we gotta. Email us at eksb at com, and we will be sure to talk about your email in a future show because we run out of ideas quickly. All right, God bless y'all.